0: Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Park Community Church. I'm Jamie Borchick. I am an elder and I do some of the teaching here. It's great to have you with us on the Sunday morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can find Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 39 to 56 this morning. If you did not come with a Bible this morning and you want a Bible, there's a table in the back in that entry area with a bunch of Bibles on it. And that's our gift to you. So Merry Christmas. Grab a Bible. You can have one. We'd love for you to take that. Um, now, this morning... And this is the ricketiest stand I think I've ever had up here. So if it falls, we can enjoy that together. All right. Um, yeah, this morning I want to start with a definition. The definition. According to Merriam Webster, and last I checked, they write the dictionary, so they're supposed to be experts on this sort of thing. So you can take it on their authority. A revolution is a sudden, radical, or complete change. A revolution is a sudden, radical, or complete change. And history is marked by significant revolutions. Today, I want to talk to you about the greatest revolution in the history of the world. This morning marks the second Sunday in Advent. An Advent means coming or arrival. An Advent is a time where the church historically has looked back at Christ's first coming and simultaneously looked forward to his second coming. And this Advent, we're preaching through the Gospel of Luke and Luke's telling of the coming of Christ. Today, we come to a text that is, in fact, revolutionary. Now, we may not often think of the coming of Christ as a revolution. My claim today is that Advent brought, and Advent still brings, the greatest revolution in the history of the world. Advent is revolutionary, and our text today is a revolutionary text. The context of our passage this morning is the text that we looked at last week. Mary has just had a completely unexpected visit from an angel named Gabriel. Mary is an unmarried young woman, a virgin who's never been with a man. And yet Gabriel informs her that she's going to be pregnant with a son whom she's going to name Jesus. And then he drops a bomb on her and he says, her son will be called Holy, the son of God. This is the news that Mary has just received. And our text today is what happens next. So this whole passage is the response to that news. And I'd invite you, if you're able to stand with me this morning as we read this revolutionary text. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 46. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask this morning that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Speak to us, God. Speak through me. Use this time to help us to see you more clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can grab a seat. So, what happens here? Well, the action of this section is really pretty simple. Mary hears this news that she is to be pregnant with the Son of God, and she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who is also pregnant with John the Baptist. Elizabeth lives in the hill country of Judah, which would have been some 70 or 80 miles south of Mary's home in Nazareth. And so Mary hops in the car, and a few hours later, she pulls up in the driveway. Now, just plan, in reality, this journey would have taken her about three to four days. And she goes right away, as Luke tells us, with haste. And Mary gets there, and she greets Elizabeth. And notice what happens when Mary says hi. Verse 41, the baby leaped in her womb. So, John the Baptist shows off his hops and he jumps for joy at the sound of Mary's voice. And then Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 42, she gives voice to John's emotion by blessing both Mary and the unborn baby Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly how Elizabeth knows what she knows. Perhaps Mary told her, or maybe the Holy Spirit revealed it to her. But Elizabeth knows that the baby Mary is carrying is no ordinary child. He is, as she says in verse 43, my Lord. And she blesses Mary and Jesus because of it. And then finally, in verses 46 to 55, Mary responds to Elizabeth's blessing with a blessing of her own. Mary bursts out in a song of praise to God. And that's the story. Simply put, we have John the Baptist, his mother Elizabeth, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, all responding with joy and praise to the news that Mary is pregnant. Pretty simple. Now, I said that this is a revolutionary passage. And while there are certainly some unusual elements of this story, none of what I just said sounds all that revolutionary. I mean, women frequently get pregnant, and often, usually, when a woman gets pregnant, the response to that news is joy. And so on the surface, this text may seem very ordinary. So where is the revolution? Where is the revolution? Well, we see it in three places. The first is in the characters. There's a revolution in the characters of this story. Because who are the characters in this story? Well you have Mary, you have Elizabeth, and you have the as yet unborn children in each of their wombs. And these characters all have something in common. They were all people who would not have been seen as leading characters in the Jewish Greco-Roman world in which they lived. The first century world was very much a man's world. In Greco-Roman thinking, men were inherently superior to women. In fact, women were often regarded as little better than slaves. And even among Jews, there was a common prayer that was prayed by many men each morning where you know, they'd get up and they'd be doing their morning quiet time, having their cup of coffee, uh, doing their morning devotional, and they would pray this prayer. They would say, God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Thank you that I'm not a woman, God. Now, in our own day... One of the common critiques of Christianity is that Christianity is regressive toward women, that it has that kind of posture. Many assume that the Bible itself teaches male dominance like like that of the first century and akin to what you might see today in a show like The Handmaid's Tale. But look at this text. Who are the stars of the show here? It's Elizabeth and Mary, two women. And at least one of them, Mary, was a rather poor woman. She didn't come from power or means. She had very little to her name. And yet here she is, pregnant with the Lord Jesus Christ, given a prominent place in the pages of Scripture, speaking words that have now echoed down through the centuries. And if you continue reading through the pages of the New Testament, you'll see that the prominence of women doesn't stop here. Rebecca McLaughlin is a scholar who's written a book titled Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. And in that book, she writes this. She says, the four New Testament Gospels tell multiple stories of Jesus relating to women. Poor women, rich women, sick women, grieving women, old women, young girls, Jewish women, Gentile women, women known for their sinfulness, women known for their virtue, virgins and widows, prostitutes and prophetesses. Looking through their eyes, we see a man, Jesus, who valued women of all kinds, especially those vilified by others. Indeed, the way that Jesus treated women tore up the belief that women are innately inferior to men, a belief that was pervasive in the ancient world. We should not be surprised, therefore, that women have been flocking to Jesus ever since. And that's true. Globally, there are more women who follow Jesus than there are men, and that's been the case for a long time. It's because the Bible dignifies women in ways that no other culture before or since has. See, Christianity is not antithetical to women's rights. Rather, Christianity is the best and most firm foundation for women's rights. In fact, the scenario that plays out in The Handmaid's Tale, where a man sleeps with an enslaved woman, that scenario was was very common in the ancient world. And do you know what changed that dynamic historically? It was Christianity, it was the Bible. The New Testament commanded husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And when Christian people started living out that principle, it put an end to practices like what we see in The Handmaid's Tale. As one author sums it up, Christianity is the most pro-women religion in the world. And we see that in these two women right here. So Christianity is revolutionary for women. But it's not just revolutionary for women. It's also revolutionary for children. Because the other stars of this text are unborn children, John in Elizabeth's womb and Jesus in Mary's womb. Just as in our day, unwanted pregnancies were quite common in the ancient world. And because abortion was relatively dangerous at the time, the normal response to an unwanted pregnancy was a practice known as infant exposure, If a woman was carrying a child who was unwanted, whether it was she who didn't want it or it was her husband or perhaps her father, some male in her life because of that male domination thing, if a child was unwanted, then the unwanted infant right after birth would literally be taken to the garbage heap outside of town and thrown on the garbage dump. And there the child would either die or be taken by traitors into slavery or prostitution. That's how unwanted children were treated. But into that cultural context came the revolution of Luke chapter 1. Earlier in Luke 1 verse 15, Luke told us that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So we see an unborn child capable of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then when Mary shows up carrying the unborn baby Jesus in verse 41, what does unborn John the Baptist do? He leaps in Mary's womb. One unborn baby jumps for joy in the presence of another unborn baby. And so here in Luke 1, long before ultrasound imaging showed us vividly what life in the womb looks like, and long before scientific research showed us the very real capacity of unborn children to feel and experience emotion, this text presents an unborn child as a human person, feeling emotion, jumping for joy, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is consistent with the universal testimony of Scripture that life begins not after birth, but actually in the womb itself. And it was that testimony of Scripture that led Christians in the ancient world to oppose abortion and to combat practices like infant exposure. In fact, early Christians would regularly go to the garbage heaps where those children had been thrown off to to die or to be taken into slavery. And Christians would go to those garbage dumps and they would rescue them and they would place them into the homes of loving families where they could be raised and have a full life. And I know that some of you here today, some of you in this room, you've acted comparably by adopting children into your family, children who needed a home, children who needed, a, uh, needed parents and needed love. Some of you have uh, welcomed uh, foster children and safe families' families into your, into your family. You've made space for kids who needed a place to go. And to you, I just want to say, well done this morning. If that's you, you're doing a great job. You're following a long legacy of Christian compassion for children. And that's a beautiful thing. And so here's the bottom line. The Bible is resolutely pro-women and pro-life. I know those two things don't seem to go together in our political context today, but the Bible is resolutely pro-women and pro-life. And for that reason, Christians are people who highly value both women and children. We are pro-women and we are pro-life. And that's the first revolution of this text. So first, there's a revolution in the characters. Revolution in the characters. Second, there's a revolution in the song. Mary's words from verses 46 to 55 are a poem or a song. And this song is famously known as the Magnificat. It's uh, it's based on the first word of the song in its old Latin translation, which would be our English word magnify, so the Magnificat. And this song draws on Old Testament language to offer praise and thanksgiving to God for his actions all throughout history. And again, this song is revolutionary. In the ancient world, there was a very clear hierarchy. At the top of society were the rich and the powerful, and at the bottom of society were the poor and the powerless. The rich could expect to be taken care of, while the poor should expect to go hungry. And this was all deemed right and good and normal. Historian Tom Holland has extensively studied the ancient world. He's written a number of significant books on antiquity. And when he started his studies, he notes that what struck him most about the ancient world was the complete lack, and this is a quote, the complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. There was resounding throughout studies of antiquity a, a notion that there was a complete lack of any sense that the poor or the weak might have the slightest intrinsic value. The poor and the weak did not matter to the ancients, just didn't matter. And yet here is a poor young woman singing this song, and in it she tells of a God who does not play by the rules of that social hierarchy. Look at the lyrics of this song with me. Mary begins in verses 46 to 49 by praising God for his work toward her specifically. So she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. and My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. So my whole being, everything that's in me, all that I am and all that I have, I I praise God. And why? Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. So God is mighty. He is at the top of the hierarchy. In any hierarchy, God is at the very, very top. He's all the way up. That's what it means to be God. He's he's up here. And he's so high up that Mary calls him holy at the end of verse 49. Now, to be holy is to be set apart. And this is less about God's moral quality than it is about his exalted status. So he's so high up that he's in a category all by himself. It's like he lives in the penthouse suite of a very exclusive building with restricted access. He's got the whole floor to himself. No one else can go there. He's up there. And Mary, by contrast, where is she? Well, she's down on the street. She's a nobody. She doesn't matter. In verse 48, Mary refers to her humble estate. And the word there means humiliation or lowliness. She goes on to describe herself as God's servant. And as Phil talked about last week, that word servant is more literally translated slave. And so Mary is not in the penthouse. Mary is on the street. Culturally, she should expect to be hungry. She should expect to be invisible and ignored. And yet, how does God treat her? He looks upon her. She is culturally invisible. She is a nobody. And yet, the God of the universe sees her. He notices her. He sets his gaze upon her. When the whole world would pass her by without so much as a glance... God lovingly selects her for the noble mission of carrying her son into the world, of carrying his son into the world. He produces such a revolution. God produces such a revolution in Mary's life that we're still talking about her today some 2,000 years later. And Mary's point in this song is that what God did for her was not a one-off thing. Look at verse 50. Who is God's mercy for? It is for all who fear him through all generations. Now, one of the qualities that defines our holy God is his mercy. Five times in this chapter of Luke alone, God's mercy is referenced. Now, mercy is kindness or concern towards someone in need. It is looking at someone who is in some sense beneath you, someone over whom you have some form of power or control, And instead of ignoring them, seeing them. Instead of erasing them, elevating them. Instead of crushing them, actually caring for them. Mercy is not treating others as they deserve or as your power would allow you to, but rather it is showing others favor they do not deserve and could never earn from you. One of the most important scenes in the Old Testament appears in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And in that scene, God reveals himself to Moses atop Mount Sinai. The Lord tells Moses there that he's going to make his glory pass by Moses, that Moses is going to get to see God's glory on full display. And when God then passes by Moses and shows off his glory, when Moses gets to look upon the glory of God in person, in real life, do you know what form that glory takes? words. God describes his very own character in words. And this self-description goes on to become the most referenced passage of scripture by the rest of scripture. So in the rest of the Bible, when the writers of of the Old Testament, the New Testament, when they're looking at the character of God, they look back at this scene in Exodus and say, that's who God is. And in God's self-description, do you want to guess what tops the list of his character traits? mercy. God says the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. And then as you go through the rest of the Bible there's only one thing that the New Testament says God is rich in. And again you want to guess what it is? Mercy. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, God being rich in mercy. As Dane Ortland puts it, God is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And the withdrawals we make as we sin our way through life cause his fortune to grow greater, not less. His mercy is ever increasing as he cares for fallen creatures like us. See, mercy is one of God's defining attributes. He is fundamentally merciful, he is rich in mercy, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And how does his mercy work? How does he show kindness or concern to those in need? Look at verses 51 to 53. Look at the revolution that God enacts for all who fear him. In verse 51, he scatters those who are proud in their hearts. Then in verse 52, he brings down those who are mighty from their thrones. And finally, in verse 53, he sends the rich away empty. So the proud, the mighty, and the rich are those at the top of the social hierarchy. They may not be in the penthouse but they're certainly on the upper floors. But here, in this text, they are scattered. They're brought down. They're emptied. God humbles them. And in contrast, verse 52, what does he do for the humble? Those of humble estate, those who are on the street, they are exalted. They are lifted up on high. And then in verse 53, what does God do for the hungry? Those who are lacking in this world, they are filled with good things. And this isn't just food, this is good things more broadly. This is every good thing you need for life. So just as the mighty one did great things for humble Mary, the strong one, the one the text says is, shows strength with his arm, he gives good things to those who fear him. See, this section of Mary's song tells of a complete reversal of human values. We live in a world where the rich and powerful sit on thrones and call the shots. But Mary pictures a world where God alone sits on the throne and all pretenders are removed. Where those who deny God and who oppress his people are thrown down. And where those who trust God and obey him are raised up. See, Mary sings of a God who turns the orders of this world upside down and right side up. And as we read this revolutionary song, there are two equal and opposite errors that we can make. One error is to over-spiritualize it. Like we can read this song and we can think that this is merely speaking symbolically of power and wealth and we can lose sight of the fact that Mary is speaking of actual material power and wealth in this very real world. As we continue through the Gospel of Luke, we will see over and over again that material power and wealth are actually quite spiritually dangerous for us. Those who have much are prone to cling to what they have and to forsake the God they actually need. And Jesus will repeatedly call his people to be generous, therefore, with money and possessions and power. And, and I, know that, I know that many of us in this room, we don't naturally think of ourselves in terms of being rich or powerful. But the truth is that almost all of us here today are in the top 5 to 10% of the richest people on the planet. Statistically, if you make $50,000 a year, that puts you in the top 2% globally. Most all of us here today have more money and stuff and influence than the vast majority of people alive today and throughout most of world history. And so when the Bible warns us about power and wealth, we need to listen, lest we find ourselves on the wrong side of this revolution. And this song would call us to be faithful with our wealth and power, to steward it not for the sake of building our own little kingdoms that God will then have to tear down in the revolution someday. But rather to steward it for the sake of building God's kingdom, to be generous with wealth and diligent with power, and to use what we have for the sake of those in need. As Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 12, verse 48 Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. What are you doing with the much that God has given you? What are you doing with the much that God has given you? That's a question most of us need to think long and hard about. And for those of us here today who don't have much in the world, this song is a promise of a better future. God works revolution for his people. And this is a song that is a song of hope. There is a God who sees your needs and longs to meet them. He wants to meet them. And in the end, he promises he will work justice He will set things right in this material world. And so the encouragement of the song is to look to him and trust him for provision. So do not over-spiritualize this song. Don't over-spiritualize it. But at the same time, and this is the other error, do not under-spiritualize this song either. In verses 54 and 55, Mary reminds us that God's actions in the material world Are a result of the covenant promises he made in generations past. God acts in mercy toward those who fear him. It says, in remembrance of his mercy. And so why does God act in mercy? Well, it's precisely because he remembers the mercy that is his very own character. He remembers who he is. And who does he show that mercy to then? Well, it's not just to those who are poor and powerless in some general sense. Though God certainly has compassion on all those who are vulnerable and oppressed in the world, rather, verse 50 again, his mercy is for those who fear him. See, what God is doing in the world is not merely revolution for the sake of revolution. Rather, it is revolution for the sake of his own kingdom. He is a king, and he's made us to have him as the king on the throne of our lives. He made all of us to do what Mary does in this song, to magnify him, to rejoice in him, to lift him up, and to praise him as the place of highest prominence in our lives and in our world. That's what we were made for. And our greatest problem in life is never material poverty or worldly powerlessness. It is always the pride of our hearts that puts us on the throne of our lives instead of putting God in his rightful place. It is the pride of our hearts that causes us to neglect those in need and to ignore those of more humble circumstances. See, we fear poverty more than we fear God and so we chase after wealth and accumulation. We fear being ignored more than we fear God so we chase after status and recognition. Our greatest problem is our sinful pride that puts ourselves on the throne that only rightly belongs to God. And that is fundamentally a spiritual problem. To which the only solution is a spiritual solution. To put God on the throne of your life where he belongs. So do not under-spiritualize this song. Instead, in all of life, fear God. Bow before the king and let the king be the one who lifts you up. And that is the promise of this song. God looks on the humble. He sees those who bow before him. And his mercy is for all who fear him from generation to generation. That is the second revolution. And so there's revolution in the characters. There's revolution in the song. And finally, and most significantly, there's revolution in Mary's womb. There's one interesting and significant feature of Mary's song that we have not yet discussed. And that feature has to do with time. Notice that God's accomplishments in verses 51 and 52 and 53 and 54, they all appear in your Bible in the past tense. He has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry. He has sent away the rich. And he has helped his servant Israel. The time orientation on all of these verbs appears to be in the past as if Mary is speaking of things that have already taken place, as though God has already accomplished this great revolution. And yet in this text, what is the event on which all of these past tense verbs depend? God's accomplishments in verses 51 to 54 are a further unpacking of the great things that God has done for Mary in verse 49. Mary said, God has done great things for me. And then she proceeds to lay out all of those great things. But in Mary's own life, at the time she is speaking, have any of those great things actually taken place yet? Well, the answer is no. As Mary speaks, she's still a poor, unmarried girl living under the oppression of a conquering empire. As she speaks, there is just one great thing that has taken place in her life. And what is it? It is the child in her womb. God has given her this child. That is the great thing. And all of God's other accomplishments that Mary lists out out here are therefore dependent on that child. And so do you see what is happening here? Do you understand what Mary is saying? To put it succinctly, Mary is saying that the revolution, that whole revolution, it all depends on the child. It all depends on the child. The exaltation of the humble, the filling of the hungry, the scattering of the proud, the sending away of the rich, all of it Mary is saying, will be the result of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. As Mary sings, all of that is still in the future. And yet that future revolution is so certain that Mary prophetically portrays it as a past reality. The salvation that God is bringing into the world is so sure while Jesus is yet in Mary's womb that she considers it as good as done. It's money in the bank. And she speaks accordingly. Now, have any of you watched the Netflix series, The Crown? Anybody into The Crown? Okay. All right. Some of you are embarrassed to raise your hand right now, but I know more of you have watched it. I am in that category. I have a wife who likes it, and it's actually pretty entertaining. But if you have watched The Crown, what I'm about to say will be pretty fresh for you. But back in 1989, one of the most beloved people on the planet was Princess Diana, And in 1989, Princess Diana did something revolutionary. She visited a ward of AIDS patients. Now at the time, AIDS patients were the most marginalized of all people. There was a profound stigma that kept others away from them. And yet do you know what Princess Diana did in 1989? She went to that hospital, to that AIDS ward, and she went and she gave those AIDS patients hugs. On camera, photo and video, Princess Diana, giving them hugs. She got close to them. She touched them. She spent time with them. This was someone from the very top of the hierarchy stepping off of her throne and going to spend time up close and personal with those at the very bottom of the hierarchy. It was shocking. It was scandalous. And it was also revolutionary. In doing what she did, Diana revolutionized the way the world treated people with AIDS. Not as pariahs, but as people, as people. But Diana was not the first to take that kind of action. Two centuries earlier, a great king willingly stepped off of his throne to enact an even greater revolution. He became a fetus in a womb. He was born to a vulnerable, unmarried girl. He was raised under the oppression of a foreign empire. And then he spent his life visiting the most disadvantaged and marginalized in society, widows and orphans foreigners and tax collectors sinners and prostitutes the blind and the lame the diseased and the demon-possessed children and women he crossed social lines of geography and occupation and ability and health and age and gender and religion and ethnicity and he didn't do it to be fashionable to get a good selfie to post on social media no he did it to be merciful Because mercy was his very nature. And in the greatest act of mercy the world has ever known, he went so far as to actually trade places with those at the very bottom of the hierarchy. The truth is that every one of us, every one of us here and all over the world, every one of us has committed high treason against the throne of heaven. Our greatest problem is our sinful pride whereby we have all revolted against God and removed him from the throne and replaced him with ourselves. And God is a mighty God. He's the mighty one and his arm is strong. And the consequences of rebellion against him is banishment from his kingdom forever. And what that means is that whatever our social status in this world, whether we're high or low, whether we're penthouse or street, our spiritual status is actually in the gutter. We deserve nothing less than death and banishment for our crimes. And yet Jesus Christ left the penthouse and went into the gutter on our behalf. He faced the oppression of a conquering empire. He was unjustly arrested and sentenced to death. And he was murderously nailed to a cross where he suffered and died in our place for our sake to show mercy to sinners like you and me. To offer a place in the penthouse with God forever and ever. In the opening line of her song, Mary calls God my savior. Now Mary was and is a blessed woman. God chose her out of all the people who have ever lived to be the vessel through whom his son would come into the world. And yet Mary, just like the rest of us, Mary needed a savior. And Mary was blessed not because of anything intrinsic to her, but because she believed God's promise of a glorious revolution. And y'all, that is the invitation to you today. To join Mary in believing God's promise. To follow Mary in trusting in the savior. Now, one meaning of the word revolution is a sudden, radical, or complete change. And Jesus certainly brought a revolution into the world for women and for children and for the poor and for the powerless. But there is another meaning of the word revolution that is equally relevant here this morning. Revolution can also mean the motion of a figure about a center or an axis. Planets individually revolve on an axis. The planets of our solar system collectively revolve around the sun. We are constantly involved in some, some massive cosmic revolution. We are in the midst of it constantly, all the time. But far more importantly than that kind of revolution, there is some axis or center on which each of our own individual lives revolves. There is someone or something at the center of our lives around which everything else rotates in our lives. And do you know why Jesus Christ came into the world in the first place? He came to be at the center of the revolution of our lives. He caused a revolution in the world, and he desires to be in the center of your life, and the center on which your life and the entire world revolves. He is the Savior of the world. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and he is offering you his mercy today. And my plea to you this Advent would be to join his revolution. Join his revolution. Like Mary, believe what God says. Follow Mary's example of trust in his word. Humble yourself before him and put Jesus at the center of your life in order that your life might revolve around him. And then join in the revolutionary song, magnify the Lord, rejoice in God my Savior. Let's pray. God, you alone are Lord, you alone are king, you alone are mighty, you alone are strong. We, by contrast, you are at the very bottom, every last one of us. We deserve banishment, we deserve punishment, we deserve death because of our rebellion against you. And yet in your great mercy, you have offered us life and life eternal, true life, real life. Father, would we be a people this Advent who look to you for the revolution we need in our hearts? Would Jesus be at the very center of everything that we do, at the center of our lives? If there's something else in that place right now, would, would this be a moment of repentance where we would remove it and we would recognize, we'd say, God, I need you at the center. I take that thing out of the center and I put you there instead. And God, would you make us a people who live as people of this revolution who have compassion and mercy for women and for children, for the poor and the powerless. God, that we would be faithful with the much that you've entrusted to us, that we would be generous with wealth, diligent with power, faithful with all that you've given for the sake of those in need. God, we thank you for the revolution you've brought into the world, the dignity you've brought to people who didn't always have it. And I pray that today you would shape our church, shape us as a community to be an Advent kind of community that brings this revolution into the world more and more. We praise you today. We magnify you and we rejoice in you, O God, our Savior. It's in Jesus' matchless name I pray.